back up a little ways into chapter 4 to read it in context. And so we'll begin reading at Acts chapter 4 and just the last little bit of the last uh, paragraph, beginning at verse 36. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. That was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word, every aspect of your word, uh, the parts that challenge us, the parts that encourage us. We just pray that you would open our eyes this morning as we uh, meditate upon it and may uh, our responses to it and the meditations of our heart uh, be acceptable in your sight and may our amens uh, resound in our hearts as we hear what your word says. Uh, do anoint me and enable me to preach faithfully. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Last week I read a very sad story uh, about a lady who bought a beautiful home in Georgia, and she had gone through um, all of the things that you're supposed to go through before you buy the home, got it termite inspected, and... Then when the day of uh, closing happened and they moved into the home and they were starting to put up pictures and different things, uh, she came to a horrifying realization. Uh, I saw the home. It's just beautiful. I saw it before pictures and afterward pictures. Somebody put their arm up against the wall and his whole arm went right through the paper-thin skin that was on the wall and she realized that they had termites. And so... They um, called a contractor to try to fix that wall, and as the contractor tore it out, he noticed it just kept going around, and they were tearing out wall after wall until finally they realized that almost every support structure in the building was ready to crumble. They quickly evacuated for safety, and as they went through the building, there was nothing salvageable. The whole thing was going to have to be torn down. And so here are her life savings, and she's been saving for years and years to buy a home, uh, were um, gone, 
and now it's waiting in court. Uh, the people who were the bug inspectors said, hey, we couldn't see any telltale signs, and it was beautiful. I mean, you couldn't see. Now, Jonathan says they could have tapped along the baseboards, and there's different ways that you could tell. But um, uh, it was a, a horrible experience. We don't have Formosa termites uh, up here, but our own, I think, are bad enough, aren't they? In fact, it made me a little bit worried when I read that story here. My son is buying homes and fixing them up. We better be careful. But uh, you may not think that that is a very good word picture for the hypocrisy that we see in Ananias and Sapphira, but I do think that it communicates very clearly some of the differences between Barnabas and this couple. Uh, Luke is introducing a deliberate contrast between the pretended grace of chapter 5 and the spirit-given grace of chapter 4. Notice the word but at the beginning of verse 1. NIV obscures that, but the Greek has a, a very definite but there. The last two verses of chapter 4 show Barnabas having sold some land, having given it to the church, and this was something that the Spirit produces. And the first two verses of chapter 5, there's another couple, do it seems like exactly the same thing. They bring a part of the money, a very generous gift, uh, to the church. But the Spirit of God has put that little word but there to show that these two givings are a world apart in their nature. They may have appeared to be similar to everyone, but uh, chapter 4 shows actions flowing from real grace, and chapter 5 shows actions flowing from counterfeit grace. And I think it's important to realize that every grace that God produces, there is a counterfeit. Uh, God produces joy, well, so does Satan, and so can our flesh produce joy. Uh, God produces peace, uh, he gives a generosity like in this chapter. Well, Satan can produce generosity in people, and our flesh can uh, show forth generosity as well. Now, that does not mean that Ananias and Sapphira were unsaved. They may have been uh, unsaved. Uh, that's a debate that's uh, actually gone on for hundreds of years, and I have read the evidence on both sides. I really don't think that either side has come up with uh, very uh, definitive proofs, but whether they were believers or whether they were unbelievers is totally immaterial to the force of Luke's argument, and I say that because even believers demonstrate at times some of the same hypocrisy that Ananias and Sapphira did. In fact, I think it's not by accident that Luke uses Barnabas as an illustration in counter to uh, Ananias and Sapphira because later on in, in Barnabas's life, he falls into exactly the same sin of hypocrisy. In Galatians 2.13, Paul says, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas. And so if even Barnabas could fall into the trap of hypocrisy, I think there's a lot that we can learn from the contrast between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And the first thing I want you to notice is that the presence of termites was not the reason why Ananias and Sapphira were being judged. Barnabas had termites of sin as well. Everybody did. If you look at chapter 4, verse 33, it says, And great grace was upon them all. Notice the word all. Great grace was upon them all. Great grace was needed because of the great presence of sin. Where sin abounds, the scripture says, grace abounds 
much more. And so everybody has termite problems. I know I do, and I know you do, whether you admit it or not. Uh, the Scripture says you do, so I know you do. Uh, we all have termite problems. Uh, the question is, do we go to the Lord Jesus Christ to have him and his grace, as it were, bring bug spray into, into our homes? Do we allow the Holy Spirit to shine his spotlight into our lives? Or are there certain areas of our homes that are off limits to the termite control work of the Lord Jesus Christ? I think it would be a serious mistake for us to think, oh yeah, I know why they were judged, because they got this horrible sin in their life, this termite. Um, they're not saved because, uh, look at them, they're struck down dead by God. God is very disapproving of them. Well, I think we need to realize that God has struck down uh, people who are genuine believers and who are secure for all of eternity in the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that there were many people in that congregation who were weak, who were sick, some who had even died because they were coming to the Lord's table in hypocrisy. What is the Lord's table communicating? It is communicating that we are in communion with Christ, we're in communion with each other, and yet they're out of fellowship with each other and having all kinds of sins against each other. He says it was because of their hypocrisy that they were being judged. We do not come to the Lord's table worthily because we are perfect. In fact, if we think that we are perfect, that's precisely the time when we are coming unworthily to the Lord's table, right? It's only as we come in the worthiness of Christ and we realize, Lord, we need your work in our lives. There's termites in our lives. We need you to spray and to destroy the termites that have been coming in there. It is a willingness to have him inspect our lives. It's a humility and dependence upon him. And so the first thing I want you to notice is it's not because of the presence of termites of sin in their lives that they came under judgment. Everyone has sinned. Notice, too, that Luke does not deny that Ananias and Sapphira were generous. Barnabas very generously gave of his property. These people very generously sold property and gave it as well, or at least a part of it. If they had just said, yeah, we're going to give a part of this property, a very generous gift, what they had done. Now, did their generosity spring from faith? Again, it depends on whether you think that they were believers or not. Uh, but remember that even true believers can lack faith at times and can lack uh, godly graces. Uh, perhaps I should review the way in which this generosity flowed out of faith in the last section. If you look at verse 32, it says, Now the multitude of those who believed, and I think that is a key phrase, of those who believed, everything after that flowed out of their faith. It's not just justification. Galatians 5 says, yes, justification flows from faith, but so does sanctification, so does miracles, so does everything in the Christian life. And if everything flows from faith, that means we can boast in nothing because faith simply receives from God and from His grace what we need uh, in our lives. A sure way to get into legalism is to read chapter 5 as if Ananias and Sapphira did not try hard enough to be accepted by God or to be accepted by the church. <clears throat> um, no, their house did not fall down because of the presence of the termites of sin, but because they sought to cover it up, to ignore it, and to pretend that it did not exist. And so verse 32 indicates our life starts with faith. Why? Because it's all of grace. 
And then he goes on in there and he says there's two things that flowed from grace. First of all, that this faith caused them by God's grace to hold tightly onto relationships and then secondly to hold not very tightly, to hold with an open hand things. Relationships held tightly, things held not so tightly. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, there's holding onto relationship tightly, and of one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. There's the recognition, Lord, everything I have belongs to you. You can take it at any time. So they're not holding to things tightly. They're holding it with an open hand with the result that it says, but they had all things in common. When an emergency arose, they were very generous uh, with the things with each other. Now, last time we distinguished very carefully number of different points how this is not asceticism and it is not socialism um, but it is clear that great grace made these people have great generosity and it appears that ananias and sapphira were attracted to that they saw the revival that was going on they saw what barnabas had done and it made their heart glow and they said we want to be a part of the glory of what's happening here uh, the, the, they were encouraged by the revival and yet their motivations flowed from the flesh. And so chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, does show that they made a sacrifice. We need to be careful. We're not so busy pointing the finger at their sin. We fail to realize what they did uh, was in part good. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Very generous act. And we're going to be seeing later he didn't give everything that he had pledged, but he still gave. Third, everyone described here had professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and was treated as being a Christian. And by the way, even Ananias' name shows um, the knowledge about grace. Uh, his name means Jehovah is grace, gracious. He was living in an atmosphere of grace, and yet he failed to apply God's grace to this particular sin. Fourth, both were attracted to the grace-filled and spirit-filled church. Now, some people may wonder, well, how could an unbeliever be attracted to a spirit-filled church? And again, we're not guaranteeing that they were unbelievers or that they were believers. But if you want to take it that they were unbelievers, just take a look at chapter 5, verse 13, and you'll see there were unbelievers who were attracted to this. It says, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. When God's grace is powerfully at work in a church, yes, it's going to draw some fire from some of God's enemies, but there will always be some who are also attracted to that, even if they do not dare to join you, even if they do not become uh, Christians. And again, I'm not going to settle whether they were truly saved or not, because I do not see that as being Luke's intention. He would have given us more information if he wanted us to know that question. I think he deliberately leaves it vague. And so I'll be giving evidence on both sides of this uh, question this morning. The real contrast can be seen in the attitudes that were displayed towards sin, God, and grace. In your outlines, I list several verses that show the others took sin very seriously in, in chapters 1 through 4. The gory description of the fruits of sin in chapter 1, verse 18, was designed to show how revolting sin was to the early uh, church body they see sin as always leading to judgment chapter 2 shows sin as separating men and women from god 
needing remittance and cleansing. I mean, who wants a termite house? You know, God is in the business of destroying termites, not covering them up, and we have a faulty view of grace if we think that grace is inconsistent with judgment. You look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, God says, no, if we're not willing to judge ourselves, we're going to receive judgment. Uh, it's just not the way God works. In chapter 3, verse 19, Peter wants sins blotted out in terms of justification, and he wanted them to turn away from sins in terms of sanctification. Termites must always be dealt with, no matter how small they are. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, they were content to uh, appear right before others. Others were generous. Let's be generous, too. In fact, let's just exaggerate what we're going to be doing. We say that we're giving 100% of the proceeds of this land, but, you know, just in case there's an emergency, let's keep back a little bit. It's still a generous thing. It's... Uh, Shouldn't be a problem. Nobody knows anyway what the price is, and we're concerned about appearances. Those kinds of attitudes will eventually cause your house to crumble from termite damage, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. Next, unlike the others who feared God, this couple seemed to fear what people would think far more than they feared what God would think. Now, Paul addresses this problem in Galatians, where even Barnabas was drawn into the allurement of uh, hypocrisy. You see, it is so much easier for our pride, for our flesh, to deal with appearances, if that's all we're interested in, is, is appearances, rather than to deal with it to cover up the termite damage. And this preoccupation with appearances, in other words, with what other people might think of you, affected even Barnabas. And if it affected Barnabas in Galatians, you can be sure it's going to affect you at some time. Uh, as I was preparing the sermon, I was uh, remembering just three or four days ago, uh, I had to repent of hypocrisy once again in my life. I was uh, feeling ill that morning and left the house uh, later than... Uh, usual. I uh, didn't get to the office till just after nine. As I was walking out of the house, I looked over to see if Glenn's car was there, thinking, you know, he's going to think I'm a lazy bum, <laughs> you know, coming into work late. And it just dawned on me, once again, what hypocrisy, living in terms of appearances. Why in the world would I want people to think I was going to work before nine, you know, if I was actually going to work after nine? It's ridiculous, but that's exactly what hypocrisy is. It is ridiculous. And um, Paul said in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He says you really can't serve Christ effectively if you're being driven by hypocrisy, if you're being driven by the appearances of what are other people going to be thinking of me. He said being a bondservant of Christ is incompatible with that desire to go out and to please men. And in this passage, it is the fear of God that is the answer to the fear of man. So it wasn't just a faulty view of sin and a lack of fear of God. It was also a lack of of the appropriation of grace that made them dependent upon appearances rather than truly being holy. We can all fake our Christianity, can't we? We can fake peace when we don't have peace. We can fake joy when we don't have joy. 
we can fake humility, you know, and confess some sins over here that don't, we don't mind so much while we're desperately trying to hold on to sins over here and keep them from being detected. Uh, it, it's just an amazing thing how uh, 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 our sin, our hypocrisy, our human heart uh, can appeal to all kinds of things in order to avoid detection, putting up a veneer over the damage that termites have done. In fact, we can appeal to grace as a reason why do we don't need to deal with the termites. I don't need to deal with termites. I'm living under grace, you know, not under law. And so uh, this is something that uh, Paul counters, the subtlety of counterfeit grace when he says, shall we continue with sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, or as the King James words it, God forbid. Now, the idea in the Greek is hard to capture in the English, but it is that it is unthinkable that grace should be used as an excuse for not dealing with the termites in our life. True grace enables us to hate sin without becoming discouraged over sin. True grace allows us to be able to expose our sin to a counselor without feeling Uh, despair of the presence of termites true grace enables us to delight in the pursuit of holiness even when every day we think oh man i haven't arrived at where i'd really like to be in my christian walk it enables us to grieve over sin without giving up on the resistance to sin true grace can even have sin exposed to other men without feeling shame and feeling smallness why because our focus when we have grace is that we are looking to the sufficiency of Christ to deal with all of the termites that are in our lives. Now, all of that is a world apart from the approach to termites that either ignores them on the one extreme or despairs over them on the other extreme, and they both are coming from the same root problem that's making us just throw up our hands and say, what's the use? Why even bother trying uh, anymore? Unlike the others who depended upon God's grace for approval, this couple depended upon appearances for approval we need to give something you know because otherwise we're not going to fit in everybody else is giving something i think we need to give something too that's what's going on and so the first point is that the presence of the sin of termites is not what made this couple hypocrites it was putting up a thin veneer over the termite damage that was the problem it was hiding their sin appearing to be something that they were not It was living in the fear of man rather than in the fear of God. It was counterfeit grace. It was an inability to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And you know what? Just as uh, the presence of termites in our real homes uh, ought to scare us, go right to the bug man, you know, uh, when there is sin in our lives, it ought to cause us immediately to go to the Lord Jesus Christ and to go to him over and over, if need be, and say, Lord, root out and destroy these termites. So we can praise God that Jesus is sufficient for all of that. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? And so we need not be discouraged. Well, having given an overview of the problem of allowing sins to gnaw their way through their lives, rather than fumigating them instantly, let's just take a look at Satan's brilliant strategies because i think that word but is not only contrasting the illustration of barnabas with ananias and sapphira but it is contrasting everything that uh, was demonstrated in the church's life in verses 32 through 37 of chapter 4 and satan plants his termites 
when we are least expecting that. When everything's going great, we feel on a spiritual high, and then we're blindsided with this thing that just comes up from our hearts. And so far, the church has been doing great. Yes, they've been receiving persecution, but despite the persecution, they're growing. There's a spiritual vitality. They've made tremendous strides. There's power that is evident in the church. And so Satan, he's not getting his way over there, so he says, I'll try a different strategy. Now I'm going to try by working and destroying the church from the inside out. And I tell you, this is something that he has used over and over again in the past. He brings defeats right on the heels of victory. He takes you off guard when you think you've got it made spiritually. Let me give you some examples. When was it that David fell into sin with Bathsheba? It was when he was at the top of his life spiritually. Everything was sailing along. Everything was going great. When was it that God brought, I mean, Satan brought Balaam to tempt Israel into harlotry in the Old Testament? It was after Israel had won two remarkable victories. And then he uses this to take them down. Now, Israel was defeated at Ai because of the sin of Achan in their midst. And it was right after the brilliant, the incredible victory at Jericho. In fact, uh, uh, some commentators have pointed out that the language of verse 2 is exactly the same language that was used to describe uh, Achan holding something back. I think Luke is making a parallel uh, with Achan. Uh, but uh, the point here is that Achan's sin came on the heels of incredible grace and incredible victory at Jericho, and that's what was happening here. You wouldn't think that revival would be fertile soil for temptation, but it's a remarkable thing. It is, and that's when many falls uh, have occurred. No doubt Ananias and Sapphira wanted to bask in some of the glory that surrounded Barnabas and uh, to be a part of the excitement, but don't think that Satan is not interested in the field of religion. It's precisely in that field that he makes his biggest heyday okay it's in the context of revival point b there verses one through two indicate that it came on the wings of very good actions who would have thought that god would judge somebody who was as generous as ananias and sapphira but you see that's to think in terms of works righteousness if i am really sacrificing and working hard in these areas god's not going to judge me for these little sins over here you know, termites, uh, God's desire is to destroy termites wherever they are found, is it not? Uh, he does not, he is not interested in hiding them. And the fact that you have worked on termites in your bedroom does not mean you can ignore the termites in your living room with the television set is. And the fact that you've been squishing all of the termites that you see that have grown wings and are flying around does not mean that you can ignore the termites that are hidden because god's eyes here were not on the outward acts his eyes were on the heart he saw what was going on uh, within them this gift had outwardly all of the appearances of a very godly and noble act but the spirit overheard their conversation in verse one he knew what the land was priced for he saw the uh, deed of sale he saw the money that was deposited in the bank uh, he saw the knowing looks that went between Ananias and Sapphira that morning when he kissed her goodbye. And all the way to the church, the Spirit was no doubt convicting him and prodding him. Abandon this hypocrisy. Don't be doing this. And he ignored it. 
no matter how many good deeds that we try to cover our sins with, God still sees them. You may be able to rationalize till you are blue in the face, but you still have to deal with God's arguments. If you ignore the proddings of your conscience until they get to the stage that they got to in verse 2, then at that stage it's going to be even harder. You're going to feel an even greater need to cover your tracks and to save face. And believe me, I know from many bitter experiences in my own life, it's a whole lot easier to confess right off the bat. As soon as he brings that conviction into your life, it becomes harder and harder to confess as time goes on. So we can hide our sins from others in a religious mantle, but we cannot hide them from God. And that's what we see in the following verses. The termites of sin are detected by the Holy Spirit. And rather than grieving over this, we ought to be delighted with it. Just like we're delighted when, uh, you know, a termite inspector comes to our house, we say, Lord, thank you so much for examining my life for termites. I don't want my house to fall apart. Thank you so much for being a termite inspector. Let's look at the nature of these termites of sin. Verse 2, it says, And he kept back part of the proceeds. That word kept back means to embezzle or to keep back for yourself something that does not belong to you it'd be like if you were working in a diamond mine that belongs to another company and nobody's looking and you see a diamond and you stuff it in your shirt you're keeping back something that does not belong to you let me give you some dictionary definitions one dictionary says to keep back by way of engagement in a type of skimming operation another dictionary has to steal another has to misappropriate funds for one's own benefit to misappropriate funds for oneself, to embezzle. Another dictionary, to embezzle. Another has embezzle, withdraw covertly and appropriate to one's own use. In other words, he's taking something that does not belong to him. Now, that is a key word in opposing, like we did last time, the interpretation that this is socialism. Uh, that's not what it is at all. Uh, and then the same word is used by Peter in verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And here's the word. And keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. So the implication is that Ananias and Sapphira had already, either verbally or in writing, probably verbally, said, we're giving the whole price of this land that we sell. And they failed to give everything that they had promised to give. And if you look at the next verse, uh, verse 4 makes that clear. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? You can't steal what already belongs to you, right? And so they weren't, it did not belong to them was the implication once they give it, gave it. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw this does not even remotely resemble either asceticism or socialism, Instead, what it does is it's describing personal property rights and theft and lying. Now, he said he was lying to God, not to man. So I think the church is not the one enforcing the giving here. This is not Peter judging him. This is God judging Ananias. Peter is merely his spokesperson. And so Peter says, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. What was the lie? It was the pledge to give the whole proceeds and scripture says when we promise to do something and we do not follow through we are liable to judgment um, let me give you an example solomon said when you make a vow to god do not delay to pay it 
for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not to pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God that it was an error. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? And so obviously the New Testament takes issue with this, uh, this, this problem of failing to keep your word every bit as much as the Old Testament did. Uh, God takes this uh, very seriously. Termites do damage, and when we refuse to ha- allow termite inspections, we refuse to deal with termites, eventually... When our house gets so rotten and it's sending termites out to all the other houses, the city's going to tear the house down, right? Well, that's what's happened here. Third aspect of what was happening was that Ananias was tempted by Satan. And I'm going to pull various points together here rather than dealing linearly. But he says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Now, some people say, Well, if Satan filled his heart, then he could not have been a believer. But this is not talking about demon possession, and it's not as strong a word as it talks about Satan entering into, in, into Judas. Uh, some have their hearts. I think this is talking about the power that demons have to bring temptations into the lives of Christians or into the lives of unbelievers, whichever way that you want to take that. Some have their hearts filled with a lust for money. Others have their hearts filled with a lust for sex or a lust for power or a lust for the praise of men. But Scripture portrays Satan as having the ability to tempt and to fill our minds with these desires in both unbelievers as well as believers. Let me give you some examples. If we do not resist, 1 Corinthians 7, 5 indicates Satan can tempt Christians in the sexual arena. 1 Chronicles 21.1 says that Satan moved David to number Israel. Uh, 1 Chronicles 21, oh, 2 um, Timothy 2 verse 26 indicates that Satan can snare Christians with false doctrine. Uh, Peter, uh, uh, Satan used Peter to try to sway Christ and to tempt Christ from going, not going to the cross. And then later, Luke 22 verse 31 Uh, Christ said that Satan would try his utmost to destroy Peter's faith, make him deny the faith. Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Uh, Satan would be successful in getting Peter to deny the Lord, but not totally destroying his faith. And so the Puritans were insistent, we cannot ignore the wiles of the devil. 1 Peter 5, 8 says that you have the responsibility to resist the devil. Now, Peter knew from hard experience how bad this can be because he experienced the time when he had been giving advice to Christ and Christ turned around, looked right at him, and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you do not savor of the things of of God but the things of men. Now, that was right after Peter had been praised by Jesus for giving a wonderful testimony about him being the Messiah. So Satan was at work. But don't think of this as a situation where Ananias has no control of himself. Peter holds him responsible for his sin, does he not? And so the Puritans were just as insistent that we must be on guard against the wiles or the deceits of our own heart. 
Notice in the second part of verse 4, Peter says, Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? He conceived it in his heart, and yet Satan was involved in some way. We have a faulty view of demonology if we use the lousy excuse, I couldn't help it, the devil made me do it. No, God holds you accountable to resist the devil. And uh, that same book of James says each one, there's no exceptions here, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's James 1, 14 to 15. So he says, your heart's the problem. And then James goes right on to say, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There is a problem with the devil as well. So notice that the outline says that it was giving in to Satan's temptation. And then fourthly, Ananias was uh, um, engaging in hypocrisy. And I've already demonstrated that, so I won't belabor it. Hypocrisy takes so many different forms uh, in our lives, but all of them are concerned with appearances. How will I appear to other people? Some are more subtle than, than others. And Paul tells us what you need to do is you need to replace hypocrisy with sincerity, being willing to deliberately expose your heart and your life to other people so that your pride is subdued. Uh, he says, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. 2 Corinthians 1.12 Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Ephesians 6.24 And then we see that it was a willful sin. Um, the willfulness, it was not like Peter who was taken off guard and fell into the sin uh, and it was still his will was engaged in the sin but it was not willful in the scripture willful sin is synonymous with a high-handed sin that says I don't care what the consequences are I'm not going to repent of the sin I'm going to hold on to this and that was the case with them they had plenty of time verse 2 says it was premeditated had lots of time to rethink it and Sapphira is actually given an additional three hours and Peter talks to her and gives her an opportunity to repent. So it was definitely premeditated and willful. And what I would encourage you to do sometime is read Numbers chapter 15. That'll put a little bit of the fear of God into you, both for believers and unbelievers, where there is willful sin. He says, there remains no place for sacrifice. Now at this point, I want to just deviate from the outline. I'm not going to finish off that outline. I just want to plow through these phrases uh, these verses phrase by phrase verse 5 then Ananias hearing these words fell down and breathed his last uh, It really does not seem like a very nice thing for God to do in the age of grace And so you've got commentators and you've got uh, uh, Christian pastors who stumble all over themselves trying to explain this passage and how it fits into the New Testament uh, theology and yet the simple fact is that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He does not change. And the God who was upset with sin in the Old Testament continues to be upset with sin in the New Testament. Uh, does he always strike down people with, uh, uh, who engage in sin? No, he doesn't always do that. Uh, he does in every era seem to do that to some, to put the fear of God into others. But boy, is he patient with us. But uh, let me give you some examples. Moses' brother, Aaron, was really angry with God, upset with God for killing his two sons. Remember, they went into the temple and they 
made uh, fire their own fire so that the incense would burn rather than taking fire from the altar that God had lit. See, some people might think, you know, fire is fire. Who cares where you get the fire from just so long as they're putting fire on there. But it destroyed the purpose God had made uh, for the symbolism there. In both the tabernacle and in the temple, the first time the altar was set up, fire came out of heaven lit the altar and from that time on they kept putting wood on it they would never let the fire go out and from that time on all service in the temple had to be started with coals that were taken off the altar the prayer incense everything came from coals off the altar to symbolize the fact all our service must be flowing from the grace of the lord jesus christ and so that was the purpose of it and when Aaron complained to Moses about the death of his sons, God answered and said, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Leviticus 10, verse 3. He's saying no one can stand in God's presence apart from grace. No one. Counterfeit grace will not do. And when people insist on patching up the termite damage rather than dealing with the termites, eventually god's going to tear down that home so that the termites don't spread and infect all of the neighbors that are around that place that's the way it is with sin the termite infestation becomes worse and worse and worse and that's how sin does in the church it defiles many people and again it's not talking about being sinless it's talking about covering up sin rather than exposing it and if need be over and over again coming to the throne of grace and any view of grace that thinks that this kind of action is inconsistent with grace, that judgment is inconsistent, it's a counterfeit view of, of grace. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. He uses the word judgment with regard to it. Verse 5 goes on to say, So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. The previous chapter spoke of great grace being upon them, and that great grace is compatible with great fear. It's by the fear of the Lord that we... Um, have the beginning of wisdom right and proverbs 16 6 says in mercy and truth atonement is provided for iniquity and by the fear of the lord one departs from evil by the fear of the lord one departs from evil so again any view of grace that say it's incompatible with this reverence this awe this trembling at his word this fear of god is a counterfeit grace you see the greater god appears to us the more faith we're going to have that he's got the ability to deal with the termites that are there. And so it stirs up faith, but the greatness of God is also going to make us realize this is not a God you mess with. It's going to raise up fear. So fear and faith, totally compatible. Is your God a big God? Is he the same God that brought weakness and sickness and even death to some of the people in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Is he the same God that is described in Hebrews 12, verses 28 through 29, that says that we must serve God with reverence and godly fear, come before him with trembling, because our God is a consuming fire? I think we need to ask ourselves, have we made a God in our own image? I think there's a lot of views of grace out there, some of which have even come into the PCA, that do not look like the grace that the book of Acts describes, that the New Testament describes. Or on the other side, there are people who say, yes, 
Uh, I believe in that, but there's just a part of my life that's involved. Is the God that you serve, a God who says to you in 3 John verse 2 that his desire is that you may prosper in all things and be in health even as your soul prospers or is your God confined to just one little scope of life? It's all of life, really, that uh, God uh, claims for himself. Verse 6, And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Ananias was judged, but he was not cursed. I think there's a difference. 1 Corinthians 11 says believers can be judged, but he was not cursed. His body was not burned as a cursed person might have been. It was buried, and the special word used for buried here shows honor. Every dictionary uh, has this in it. Liddell and Scott's dictionary says, to pay the last dues to a corpse, to honor with funeral rites. This is the word that was used of Christ's burial. They honored his body. Now, it appears to have taken some time to prepare the body and to put it into the tomb that they had placed it in because it's three hours before they come back to report to Peter, and it's right about that time that Sapphira's come. And so it's quite surprising... When verse 7 uh, says, Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And the question that came to my mind is, oh, Wait a shake. How could they bury her, uh, bury him without the wife? How come they didn't notify her? How come they didn't invite her to the funeral? Well, we're not told exactly, but as this passage progresses, it appears pretty obvious that the Spirit of God did not want her to know and I believe that the Spirit of God did not want her to know because he wanted to test her with regard to sin without knowing about the judgment. You see, there are a lot of people who uh, avoid sin because they are fearful of the consequences of sin, but that does not show true love of holiness or true hatred of sin. There's a lot of pagans out there who will not fornicate because they're scared to death of venereal diseases. That does not show holiness at all. And so I think he is deliberately keeping her in the dark about the judgment to test her attitudes to sin as sin. Will she see sin as exceedingly sinful? Will she avoid sin because of the hatefulness of sin? I think that is what is going on. Verse 8, And Peter answered her, which implies she asked a question, right? Uh, and... Uh, William Hendrickson thinks the question probably was, man, it's been three hours since he came over here. Where's my husband? I've been waiting for three hours for him to come home. And so it says, Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. That's hardly the answer that she was expecting, right? She asked him, where's my husband? He says, tell me. Does he know uh, what's going on here? How come he's asking questions about this? But rather than confessing and opening up like we do so many times, she digs in her heels and furthers the hypocrisy uh, rather than giving, giving up. <clears throat> she said yes for so much. And I see this interplay so many times. With children, I see it with adults. Why is it that we find it so hard to allow our termites to be exposed? I think part of the reason to use our analogy of termites is because we're afraid that we won't be able to sell the building. In other words, we're afraid people won't accept us for who we are. 
God won't accept us for who we are. It's a works righteousness approach. It's a sad, sad deception that people have perpetrated. It, it, it fears termites being seen much more than it fears the termites themselves. We'd rather have our house crumble all around our ears than for the neighbors to find out we've had a termite inspector at our house. No, we, don't, we just don't want people to find that out. And that is true of you. I pray that God would help you to see that your acceptance comes from grace. It comes from Christ. It does not come from your behavior. Okay? It does not come by hiding the termites. <laughs> Instead, we should agree with the termite inspector. Termites are terrible. I hate the termites that are in my life. I have the termites, and I want you to destroy the termites. And the next day we go and we say, Lord, I've got termites in my life again. Please forgive me. Please come and spray my life for these termites. I am resisting them. And the third day, you confess again, and three hours later, you confess again, and people say, oh, man, I can't confess that many times. The termite inspector is going to begin to hate my guts. I'm always calling him. Well, again, it's a works righteousness answer. Why in the world would we do that? The termite inspector is not your enemy. He's not the enemy of the house. He's the enemy of the termites, right? And so when you call the termite inspector, what you are saying is, I agree with you. This is a bad problem, and I need you in my life. And yet so many times we have a counterfeit grace that says, no, I'm afraid of the termite inspector because he might show that there's termites here. Well, of course there's termites there. We need the termite inspector. We're siding with him, and God blesses us in doing so. So don't be like Sapphira in persisting and hiding the evidence from your counselors, from your family, from God. Admit it. Get the treatment. Verse 9, Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? You know, over and over again in the Old Testament, Israel, uh, when they were in the wilderness, tested God by doing things from their own flesh rather than relying upon His grace. Ten times they tested God until God finally said, I'm done with you. I'm going to put you on a shelf. You're going to wander uselessly for 40 years. I'm not going to use you to take the conquest of Canaan. They were put on a shelf. Now, we're not told how many times that Sapphira had tested God uh, here, but there does come a time when... Uh, it uh, uh, is a situation where God says uh, there is no more, there is no more remedy. Uh, in fact, I think 1 John 5 is referring to this death uh, thing when it says that there, a brother can sin a sin unto death and you can't even pray for him. It's not going to do any good. That is not talking about eternal death. It's a brother who can sin this sin unto death. I think he's talking about physical death where God says, you're useless to me anymore. I'm going to take you out. It comes from testing God too long, refusing to live by grace. Anyway, verse 9 continues, and he says, Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And so, by inspiration, he prophesies her death. Then verse 10, Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. God's disciplines are equal opportunity disciplines. Well, there was some difference between the two. I think he was judged a little bit more severely. Uh, he wasn't even given an opportunity to explain. He's, he's dead. Whereas uh, he, she's given a little bit of a chance. But she is uh, killed as well. But there is no indication she is accursed from God. 
Yes, she is disciplined, but she is not a curse from God. Her burial was handled with dignity. Her body was honored. But the termites had become so pervasive in her life that the pillars were rotten and the house came tumbling down. Now, some people try to escape from the force of this passage by insisting Ananias and Sapphira were not saved. And they think, you know, my hypocrisy is okay because I am saved. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, there's nothing bad that's going to happen to me. But if we realize that termites damage all houses, that they in fact it'll help us to realize that it really doesn't matter whether we know their eternal destiny, their eternal fate, because that's not Luke's interest in this passage. This was being written to believers to show them how they are to live in the kingdom. And if we ignore its message, let me tell you, our house will crumble just as surely as theirs did. Brothers and sisters, my admonition to you this morning is to admit to the termites that are there. They will be there. Even when you've dealt with them today, they're going to fly in through a window tomorrow. They're going to be there. You just need to resolve to yourself that spiritually you're living in Georgia. You're living in, uh, in Florida, you know, where those Formosa termites are chomping through uh, all of the wood. But by God's grace, your house does not need to fall down. If you keep a sharp eye to the sin and you're sensitive to the Spirit and allow Him to shine His light in your life and you say, Lord Jesus, come into my life right now. I want you to take these termites away. Your house need not fall. And even if you've had structural damage that's been done because you've ignored it so long, He can fix that structural damage and He can restore you uh, within your life but if you opt for hypocrisy of covering over the termite damage with a thin veneer know that you are opting for a counterfeit grace that will let you down it will let you down god has called us to holiness he's called us to joy to the love of the brethren he's called us to have a great fear of him and uh, to have great grace and it's my prayer, great grace would come upon this congregation. With that grace would come His blessing. With that grace would come uh, all of the other fruit of the Spirit that Pastor Glenn preached on sometime back. May it give to us a love for holiness, a desire for sincerity, and a hatred for the termites of sin. Amen. Father God, please, Lord, instill within us a hatred for sin. Help us to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin and help us to see your holiness. The Father, help us to view it all in light of grace. May we not approach sin or approach your holiness shrinking back because we are coming without grace. The Father, may we be so clothed in grace and secure in the Lord Jesus Christ that we can with confidence deal with the termites of sin that infect our lives and father may you give us victory may we advance from faith to faith from glory to glory finding joy in the holy spirit as you give us victory over sin after sin that is exposed by your holy spirit may our lives be strengthened and may this church be strengthened may there be rivers of living water that would flow from this place may satan not gain an advantage and uh, uh, through an Achan that is in our midst, make us ineffective. But Father, may there be such holiness that flows from your Holy Spirit that we would make a difference in this culture. 
tearing down the strongholds that Satan has erected. May you receive all of the honor and the praise and the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.